Welcome to the Library Love Fest podcast, brought to you by HarperCollins Publishers. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Check it out. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Brought to you by Library Love Hi, it's Lainey from the Library Love Fest marketing team again, and we're here with another episode of Editors Unedited, and I'm going to let our editor, Jessica Williams, take it away. Hi, my name is Jessica Williams. I'm a senior editor with the William Morrow imprint at HarperCollins, and I'm here today with Jean Kwok, who is the best-selling author of Girl in Translation and Mambo in Chinatown, and I'm going to let Jean tell you a little bit about her new book. Well, I'm really excited about my latest novel, Searching for Sylvie Lee. Um, Searching for Sylvie Lee is a suspenseful family drama about these long-buried secrets that tie together three women, a mother and her two daughters. And it's about what happens to this Chinese immigrant family when the eldest daughter, who is gifted and dazzling, disappears while she's on a trip to the Netherlands. And the younger, timid daughter has to pull herself together and follow in the footsteps of her beloved older sister to try to figure out what happened to her. And so Jean, writing about an immigrant family is something that's really personal and familiar to you. Do you want to speak about your background? Sure. Um, You know, I am a first-generation immigrant. We moved from Hong Kong to Brooklyn, New York when I was five years old. And uh, when I first came here, I did not speak a word of English. And it was only um, after we got here that I started learning. And it was really difficult because the culture was different. The language was different. The people looked different. I'd never really seen white people before I came here. I was very amazed by blue eyes and anything that was not brown eyes. Um, And, you know, to make things worse, what happened was that we started living in this unheated, um, incredibly run-down, rat-infested apartment. And we had lost all our money. We'd come from a fairly well-to-do family, but we actually lost all our money when we moved. Um, So we were living in this apartment that had no central heating. And it's, it's kind of like when the heat goes out and it gets colder and colder and colder. Uh, and you're thinking, oh, I can't wait till the guy comes to fix the heat. Well, there was no heat to be fixed. <laughs> so, uh, in fact, the windows in the back of the apartment were broken and they never bothered to fix them because they couldn't be seen. And in the front, they did fix them, but they were really thin glass. And I remember all winter long, you know, I remember we come from tropical Hong Kong, the windows would be covered with ice on the inside. And we opened the oven and we left it on day and night. So we had a little bit of warmth in the apartment. Um, The other thing that happened was that we all started working in a factory in Chinatown. And even though I was only five, I would go along with my family uh, to help. And I was not the only child in that factory. I mean, the factory was overrun with children. So I have a real working class immigrant background. 
So I remember when we first started talking about your book, when I read it on submission, asking you about the idea. So the novel opens with Sylvie going to the Netherlands and then she disappears. But much earlier than that, you find out that Sylvie was given up at birth to be raised by an extended family member in the Netherlands. And so now she's returning to the Netherlands for the first time because her grandmother is very ill. And I remember asking you, is this a common thing in immigrant families? Do you want to speak a little bit about that? Yeah, that was something that's always fascinated me as well, um, which is that I don't know if I can say it's common to have people send their babies back to China, for example, to um, have them be raised by a grandmother or a relative, but it certainly happens. I mean, I know a number of people who have done that and who have had, who have been, who have been the child who was sent back and who was the mom or the parent who did that. And it's not because they didn't care about their child, didn't love them, but when you're working class and you are struggling to make ends meet, you know, you work 24 hours a day. There's almost a, like no time to sleep. And then there's no room in that system for a baby. And it's not that you don't want the baby, but you want what's best for the baby. And there are families who believe, well, they can have a secure good upbringing with my mother, for example, or with my extended family. Back in China, they can learn the old customs. And once we have a foot, you know, in this country and we can kind of make it a little bit, we can bring them back and help take care of them. And so that was indeed a part of the story that I wanted to tell about what it's like for that child who is given away. And if they can recover for that, from that, um, how they would recover from that. So you told me earlier that you have a particular connection to libraries from when you were young. Do you want to speak about your personal connection to libraries? Well, I love libraries and librarians. They're some of my favorite people and places in the world because, you know, I was living in that rundown, unheated apartment and working in the sweatshop in basically all of my free time. So um, the library was a sanctuary. It was a place of safety and warmth and kindness, both physically, that's not to be underestimated, how important this physical public place was, um, where people weren't yelling or screaming and there were no demands on me that I couldn't meet, like at school where I was doing terribly because I didn't speak any English. And um, so it was a physical sanctuary, but obviously emotionally and mentally, it was even more than that. It was an, a revelation. Um, and so it was in the library that I learned English. You know, I learned to read and I learned grammar <laughs> and I, um, I learned that I loved to read. So I would take out as many books as I could and you know, read them as fast as I could. And then when we had a free day and I was allowed to go back to the library, I would exchange them for you know, another maximum pile. And then the library always had these um, great little like gift giveaway programs, which maybe a lot of kids don't think much of, but I think to some children, they meant everything because you know, if you read so many books, you'd get a free gift and uh, you'd get to have, pick out a book you could keep. And for me, that was amazing. Those were the only books I had. They were, you know, there was no money in our life to buy books. So every book that I owned from my childhood came from the library, from 
those reading programs, um, and I just I just love them. I read every book in my library from A to Z. I remember I started at the beginning and I went all the way to the end. And the librarians were always so kind and thoughtful, and they always encouraged my love of reading. And I really felt like it was a place where um, it didn't matter that maybe I was poor or I didn't fit in, but that it was really um, about how much I loved to read. Do you remember going to the library for the first time? Yeah, I remember my brother must have taken me to the library because my parents were always working. And it's funny because that's my brother, Quan, who um, this book, Searching for Sylvie Lee, is greatly based upon. And he... Um, he took me to the library and got me a library card. He also told me that if my book was late, like they would throw me in jail for the rest of my life. So I was terrified <laughs> of my books ever being late um, when I brought them back. But yes, he was the one who got me there and got me that library card. So now that you mentioned your brother, I wonder if you'd speak a little bit about your inspiration for Searching for Sylvie Lee and how it ties into your relationship with Quan. Well, as you know, Searching for Sylvie Lee is about a dazzling, brilliant um, older sister who disappears. And I had a dazzling, brilliant older brother who disappeared. So Quan and I were probably exceptionally close because we had undergone the immigration experience together. And um, what that meant was that when we moved to this country, you know, our parents became more lost and confused than we were. So they'd gone from being parents to being, you know, people that we needed to take care of. And we did. So it was up to us to learn the language. It was up to us to learn how to navigate this strange new world that we barely understood ourselves. Um, and so we were always really close. And I looked up to him. And he was the one who um, kind of led the way out of that life at the factory. Because, you know, you, we used to call it the cycle of life at the sweatshop. Because people would go in as little children like me. And you start by helping your parents, and then you get a little bit older, and then, you know, once you're a teenager or in your early 20s, at your height of your physical prowess, you work the sewing machines. The men would work the um, steamers, which require the most physical labor and were the best paid. And then we got older, you would get the less well-paying jobs, like cutting off thread and sewing on buttons. And you basically never left that life. You would see these little old ladies leaving the factory. And Quan showed me there was a way out. You know, Quan was the one who um, worked so hard and he was so brilliant that he shot out of that system. But I have to tell you, you know, an anecdote from the factory was that one day he was um, bagging clothes, like his life depended on it. Bagging clothing is a very strenuous job because you have to hang the clothing, the piece of clothing, on this metal rack. You reach up over your head, you pull a plastic bag off a roll on top of it, and then you have to cut the bag, you know, quickly. I mean, everything is quick, 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 because time is money. Um, and then you have to lift the entire piece of clothing with the bag on it off the rack all the way up and off and hanging on your other side and then get a new piece and you know constantly 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 I mean we were paid at that time one and a half pennies for completed piece of clothing and that is not just the bagging that is 
If there's a shirt and had buttons, you had to button it. If it's pants with a belt, you had to belt it. If there was a sash, you had to sash it. You had to hang it. You had to fold it. You had to tag it for size, for care, for, you know, everything. You had to sort it. And then we were paid one and a half pennies per piece. And um, the factory owner came by and she saw how quickly and incredibly fast Quan was working. And instead of giving him a promotion and making him a boss of the factory like you would expect in a novel, she cut our wages. And because she thought this kid is going to be making too much money because we were paid by the piece, which was illegal and, uh, and not by the hour. And she cut the family wages to one cent per piece. And I remember Quan felt so guilty um, about that. But anyway, so he showed me the way out. Do you want to talk a little bit about how he encouraged you to be a writer? So um, it was during that time when we were living in that um, incredibly rundown apartment and working in the factory that I actually started to write, amazingly enough. And I remember the moment very clearly. I was um, lying on my mattress. We didn't have beds. I slept on a mattress on the floor. And in fact, the apartment was falling apart around us. So my father was afraid that I would be brained by falling plaster. And I had to sleep with my head in a crate. So I was on my mattress with my head on the crate since I couldn't dodge if something were to come at me at high speed. And um, Quan came back from his second job. So I would get picked up by my father after school and taken to the factory to do my work. And all of my homework and, you know, tests, everything was done on the subway or during breaks at the factory. Well, Quan, who was in high school, Quan was 10 years older than I was, um, Quan and my other brothers would do the same thing. You know, they'd go through a whole day of high school, they'd go to the factory to work, but then after the factory closed at around 9 or 10 o'clock, and my parents would take me home, and that was plenty late for a five-year-old kid, Quan and my brothers would go on to a second job waiting tables at a restaurant, and they'd get home in the middle of the night. Um, and then they'd get up the next day, go to school, and do it all again. So he woke me up after coming home from his second job, so it was really late, and he lay a wrapped brown paper package um, on my mattress. I was present, and I was so amazed because, you know, we didn't have any money for presents. And instead of giving me a toy or a piece of candy, he'd gotten me something which would change my life. He'd gotten me a blank diary, and he said, whatever you write in this will belong to you. And it was from that moment that I began to write because I was so lost and confused in this strange new world that we found ourselves in, um, that that was really, you know, an incredible comfort and a means of trying to make sense of this bewildering new reality um, that we were in. So tragically, when my first book was published, uh, Girl in Translation, and it was, you know, it was a big success. It got a lot of attention, and it seemed like all my dreams come true. The worst thing that ever happened to me happened, which was that Quan just disappeared. And um, it was right around Thanksgiving, and he was a really responsible person. So when he didn't show up at home for Thanksgiving, we knew that something was very wrong. And um, it was this terrifying 
time of not knowing what had happened to him. We did not know he had just disappeared. And we asked his friends and, you know, we heard that um, by that point, you know, he'd gone to MIT and I'd gone to Harvard and he was a scientist, but he loved to fly. Flying was his passion. He was a pilot. And we heard from a friend that he'd gone to Texas to buy a small plane. So we tried to track down the airport where he had bought the plane from. Do you know how many airports there are in Texas? <laughs> so we, I mean, it was it was impossible. And finally, I hacked into his email and I figured out what had happened and where he'd gone. And we found out that he had indeed bought the plane and he'd taken off, but he'd never landed. So an incredibly strenuous and, you know, stressful search and rescue operation took place to find him and the entire time I was trying to figure out what had happened and calling companies and trying to plead with them to release their data to us, you know, the cell phone data, the credit card data, anything to help us figure out what he had done and where he'd gone um, and wondering if he was still alive. And I think that emotion it was the core of what led to searching for Sylvie Lee, the kind of younger sibling desperate to find out what happened um, to the older sibling who has always been kind of the gifted golden one in the family um, who's disappeared. And, you know, the young one has to kind of step up and try to fill those shoes. And in the end, you know, with Quan, um, we found we found the plane and we found the body. And what had happened was that he was in the mountains of West Virginia when a storm came on and it forced him to lower the plane. So he nicked a really high tree and he crashed into the side of the mountain. So I'm crying now. I know. How about you, Lainey? <laughs> Well, we've talked a lot about your that like inspirational piece of this backstory. Sorry, I'm like <laughs> very moved. Um, you had never written a suspenseful story before until this one. Do you want to talk a little bit about? And I guess maybe it comes from what you were speaking to this idea of the inner frenzy that you felt and how you then as a novelist tried to filter that through a suspenseful story and how you framed it in that way so it would read as a work of suspense even though it is very heartfelt and poignant and at its heart i would think a, a family drama but it has this element of suspense that really pulls the reader through it do you want to speak to what that was like as a writer experimenting with the genre for the first time well you know when i um, the first big decision that i made was to change of course, the story from being about a brother to being about a sister. And that made it easier for me to write. It made it easier for me to kind of filter the emotion and to create a new story from it. You know, I think when you're a writer, the, the emotional core of a story is incredibly important. And if that doesn't burn in you, the story will never come to life. But I do think that that core is a seed. And from the seed, the novel is grown, um, and the novel is deeply connected that to that core, but it's not the same as that core. So I changed it to a girl and to a story of two women, um, two young women. And then I think in all of my books, it's always been important to me to both entertain and enlighten. You know, I want people to be able to pick it up and to love reading it for the story alone, but I also want them to learn something, you know, not, you know, not obviously, but without being conscious of it. Um, so, but I also really want for every book 
to, you know, to enlighten the reader in some way, in a, in a pleasurable way, you know, not like a lecture, but that they might see something, look at the world a little bit more differently after having read it. Um, and so I've always been interested in story structure um, for that reason, but also in theme. And so when I wrote this book, you know, I think with every book as a writer, you progress. I think I could not have written this book when I was writing my debut. I think that I was not, I didn't have the craft in place or the skills to write this book because this is a really complex piece of machinery. And, you know, I, it's, of course, um, hopefully is a really pleasurable read for the reader. But for me, um, it was in many ways also a piece of engineering. And I, um, I was a real math and science kid. I had worked in three laboratories in New York before ever attending Harvard. I skipped a year when I went in. I took advanced standing um, to major in physics. So, you know, I wound up graduating in English, but I have a real um, science and math background. And so in a way, when I construct my books, I always, I can see them. I can map them out. And with this book, it felt natural to me to create this suspenseful structure because I really wanted to talk about language and I wanted to talk about how, um, you know, in a lot of ways we are all unreliable narrators to each other and to ourselves because we lie to ourselves all the time <laughs> without wanting to. You know, we tell ourselves when a guy's cheating on us and we want to stay with them. We say, oh, you know, I have to learn to forgive and uh, he's on the right path. And then when he cheats again, we say, oh my God, that jerk. And it was so clear from the beginning, he was looking at another woman on our first date. You know, we're constantly rearranging the puzzle pieces of our lives in a way that makes sense to us. And the way it makes sense depends on what we want to believe. So in a lot of ways, I feel we choose the reality we believe in. Things happen to us, but what they mean is completely up to us. So I wrote this story about these three women who are speaking three different languages. And the book is, of course, in English, but each woman is thinking in Chinese, in English, and in Dutch. And they're thinking from out of those cultures, so they're extremely um, mysterious and unreliable to themselves and to each other. So while being perfectly honest with the reader, it becomes a suspenseful read because you are trying to find out who are these people because how they see themselves and how others see them are totally different. And then Ma, for example, who speaks Chinese, when we see her from the perspective of a... Um, Western woman, she can barely speak English. And she's like, you know, all of these other women who barely can speak English and do manual labor. And she's like, sorry, so sorry, so sorry. And that's all she can say. But then we get to her chapter where she's thinking in Chinese and this world opens up to us of this intelligent, lyrical, um, kind, passionate woman that is who she is. And I find that especially in an immigrant family situation, we are hidden from each other because we possess knowledge of languages at a different to a different degree. So I still speak Chinese because I was born in Hong Kong and my mother never learned to speak English. But I see with other family members, the younger ones who don't speak English, 
they don't see that side of you know their own mother because what they're seeing is the one filtered into English and that's the situation I'm trying to replicate in this novel. So the novel becomes suspenseful in a very genuine way because the reader is trying to find out what happened to Sylvie. And uh, what I thought was interesting and fun was that as Amy, the younger sister, takes up the reins and pulls herself together, and Amy's the English-speaking one, as she follows Sylvie to the Netherlands to unravel this mystery, we start hearing Sylvie's um, story as well, but still Sylvie's timeline is backdated a month or two. So we see and experience Sylvie's you know, emotional awakening in the Netherlands, just as Amy finds out the clues to what actually really happened to her. So I'd love to hear a little bit more in terms of the actual craft on the lion level, how you went about creating this idea that the three characters were speaking in different languages while writing in English. And that's something we combed over together quite a bit. It was so hard. <laughs> well, and you <laughs> speak all three languages, so that, that helps. I do. I mean, I'm lucky that I am trilingual, but it, you know, the book is written in English, so it was so hard. And... I had to jump back and forth in my mind from language to language. So when I was, and of course, as a novelist, you're juggling a million other balls in the air. You're trying to develop character. You're moving the plot forward. You're trying to, you know, have your language not be totally crappy. You know, you're like, you know, you don't want to repeat words a million times. You're, you're trying to juggle all these things. You're pacing the novel. You're, I was thinking about theme, about water, about death, about imagery and landscape and weather and phases of the moon, all of which I plotted out, by the way. I did, I mean, on a technical level, I did plot out every single bit of this novel. And it changed, of course, during the writing. But, you know, when the moon is half full, it was half full. I'll tell you this. <laughs> so, and when the weather was bad, it was bad on that day. So I know that I don't have mistakes like, you know, on the first day of the month, the moon was half full and then you know seven days later it's still half full no it's like all of that I know works because I needed to know that the information that Sylvie had was revealed at the right time for Amy and that Amy only knew what Amy knew and so on um but um about the writing itself it was really difficult because I would need to know what the scene needed to do I would go into the character as deeply as I could. So I would go into their language and then I would translate it back into English on the page um, and not completely fluent English. I would, I made the English, I tried to really hit a balance between readability so that the readers don't come and lynch me while they're reading the book so that it's easy to read, but that you can feel this is a different language. This is a different mindset. This is a different culture. Um, but it, it was really hard. And I loved the English parts where I could just write in English and think in English and use contractions and stuff like that. Well, I have to say one of my favorite voices in the novel is Ma, who is, in a way, directly translated in Chinese. And I remember highlighting certain things and being like, would they really call it a flying machine? And you would be like, yes, that is exactly how it would be <laughs> translated in Chinese. Yeah, so you and I would have talked a lot about this idea of Sylvie being a girl without a country. And so I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit, because she is not, I hate using the phrasing, given away, but she is sent to be raised by her 
extended relative in the Netherlands at a very young age and then doesn't come back to the United States until the age of nine, where she then is going through similar to what you did, where she has to learn about American culture and how to speak English. She is raised speaking Chinese to her grandmother, speaking Dutch as a child. So it's as if she has had to immigrate again. And she doesn't even feel part of her own biological family because she feels like she was given away. And so she's always sort of floundering and yet excelling seemingly to everyone around her. She seems like this brilliant, beautiful, has it all together, great grades, goes to a wonderful school. But internally, she's always feeling a bit at a loss. I wonder if you could speak to what you want readers to take away from that idea. Well, I think, you know, you have this, you know, myth of the model immigrant and the model minority. And, um, you know, of course, you know, it's not like... It's totally not true. There are, of course, people like Sylvie who you know, did really well and went to the good schools and got the good job. But in some ways, this book is about the price that she pays for it. And um, the price is that you know she was given away as a child. She never felt like she was good enough. And I think even people who are not given away as children uh, feel like they're not good enough. And it's this incredible striving constantly to earn love and to earn her family's love and from the outside she seems to have this perfect life but from the inside she's never gone over being this homely little girl um, that was laughed at in school and I think another thing that was interesting to me about this novel is that, of course, I live in the Netherlands since I wound up marrying a Dutch guy and I wanted to talk about, you know, racism and casual racism both in the U.S. and in the Netherlands and how it affects people and when Sylvie comes back um, to the U.S. from the Netherlands kids at school laugh at her for her accent which they think is Chinese but it's actually Dutch while at the same time they're fawning over the French girl and her French accent and it's one of those you know unfairnesses of life that a French accent is considered very different from something like a Chinese accent. Um, and then, you know, just the casual way in which in all of the world, I mean, it's a global story in many ways, how um, people treat you differently if you look different and how sometimes if you're not a person of color, it's almost impossible to know what that's like. Um, so in a lot of ways, the novel is trying to put people, you know, in a language, in a culture, in a skin color that they might not have been born in and to show you know what that experience is like and I think indeed Sylvie um, is someone who has was born with tremendous talent and has developed it her talents to the utmost but in a way it can never be enough and this book is that moment when she tries to struggle with herself to figure out isn't enough can it be enough can I ever be enough so during the process of finding the cover for your book, we spoke a lot about what we wanted out of it. And I know our designer did a ton of photo research and then sort of magically actually found a picture of a young Asian woman in the Netherlands. And I remember you saying to me, an Asian woman in the Netherlands? There are no Asians here. And you were so excited to find out that she had actually found this image somehow. Do you want to speak to, I mean, what it's like for you to live there? I mean, we get it a little bit sort of filtered through the characters and Amy when she goes there and the way people look at her. Um, but what is it like for you living there? 
Well, to speak to the cover first, because I thought that was really interesting what you said about how um, we wound up finding this image of the... A, a, an Asian model in the Netherlands and the amazing thing was that I showed the cover to my husband who is Dutch and he recognized it immediately as the Netherlands which I had not I mean I thought it was beautiful and it was definitely reminiscent of the flow of water across beaches that I had seen um, there but as a Dutch person he saw immediately he said that's you know because they've got that long shallow beaches with the water flowing across it so um, that I thought that was really interesting you know of course I have been through the immigration experience twice in my life you know I moved from Hong Kong to the US and then I went again from the United States to the Netherlands when I married um, my Dutch husband so, um, it, it, you know, I have to say, of course, the first immigration experience from east to west was tremendous. I mean, that was so much harder because the languages are so different and because we didn't have the economic or socioeconomic status that I have now. You know, we were poor, we were working class, we had debt, um, we didn't speak the language. And when I moved as an adult from... America to another Western country, of course, you know, I had a Harvard and Columbia degree uh, in my pocket, and I had a highly educated husband who could kind of ease my way into society. But, you know, the Netherlands is really a trip. I mean, it, it's different. It's different. And there are a lot of things that can really mess you up when you're living there. And a lot of them are in the book, which is why I think it's so fun to be a writer. But things like, you know, there's an incident in the book where Amy, the younger sister, is sitting among a bunch of people and a plate of cookies goes around and she's hungry because she missed breakfast, so she takes two cookies from the plate. And then when the plate gets to the end of the circle of people, she realizes the last person doesn't have a cookie because she took two. They had counted the cookies. I mean, who counts cookies? In the Netherlands, they count the cookies. So, and this happened to someone I know who was, I think, at the ambassador's house or something. And, you know, a guy had taken two cookies because he was hungry and there were not enough cookies to go around for that reason. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, how incredibly embarrassing that is. But, you know, to the Dutch, that is just good manners. They only take one cookie and they would never be ill-bred enough to take more than one cookie. Um, so there are a lot of really fun things like that that I was able to put into the novel about, you know, missteps when people go and live in a new culture. So Searching for Sylvie Lee is on sale in summer 2019 on June 4th. And everyone should, I mean, look out. You can probably request an ARE through our library folks. Um, and if not, purchase a book or get it out of your library as soon as it goes on sale. Thank you.